Go ahead and show us some love on whatever platform you're using to listen. And check out our website, planetfearpodcast.com, for ways to follow us on social media, contact info, and more. Warning. Some of the subjects we discuss may be too intense or graphic for some audiences. Los Angeles County, California, home to the stars. L.A. County is a mecca to those chasing their dreams. But in the mid-1980s, Los Angeles County would become the hunting grounds for an apex predator, the likes of which law enforcement had never encountered before. A serial killer was on the loose, and no one was safe. The Night Stalker killed without prejudice. Victims were both young and old, male and female, and the victims were killed in various ways. Some were even left alive, only to be changed forever by the horror they had endured. The only common theme? The attacks and killings were extremely brutal and seemed to be motivated by pure evil. This evil would become all too apparent when law enforcement started finding pentagrams drawn on the walls of the victims' homes and sometimes on the victims themselves. The world is a fearful place. We are surrounded by people and things that would do us harm. Some walk among us every day, while others lurk in the shadows, a threat unknown. Join us as we discuss all of the things that frighten us most, from the paranormal and unknown, to the true and horrific crimes committed by our very own kind. With Matt Knapp and Lauren Smith on Planet Planet Fear. February 29th, 1960, Ricardo Richie Ramirez was born in El Paso, Texas as the youngest of five children. And that's right, I'm going to call him Richie for the rest of the episode. So during his childhood, little Richie, he went through a lot. Um, His dad was Julian Ramirez, and he was a former Mexican policeman. Uh, He went through hard times, ended up just really being down on his luck and as a result of that he became very violent and took it out on his family and so little Richie would actually end up sleeping in a cemetery at night to get away from the violence that he suffered at the hands of his father. How horrible is that? I mean like sleeping in a cemetery for comfort. As a little kid. As a little kid so I mean. I mean I I don't really know the cutoff point in age where it gets better. (laughs) (laughs) I don't either. Um, So, I mean, so little Richie, so a 10-year-old, let's just say, okay, he's, okay, at that point, he was actually younger. And this was in uh, Texas. He was still living in Texas at the time. So, El Paso, Texas, yeah. So, um, you know, little Richie, he's a little kid sleeping by himself in the cemetery. I can't even imagine my child, you know, sleeping at someone else's house at the young age that Richie's at, much less, you know, by himself in a cemetery. At that age, I wouldn't have slept outside. Exactly. Like, it's just, it's, it's heartbreaking. So that's just the beginning. Like it, it gets worse. And when I say it gets worse, I mean, it not only gets worse, it keeps getting worse. Just it gets so constantly. much worse. <laughs> okay. So age 10 years old, I have an eight year old child. I just want to throw that out there. So this really hits hard. 
um, because I keep picturing my little boy and him. I, I couldn't I can't even fathom him going through half the stuff that this child goes through. Right. So Richie is 10 years old and he bonded closely with his older cousin, Miguel, a.k.a. Mike Ramirez. So little Richard is 10 years old and he starts smoking marijuana with At his older 10. cousin. Yeah, with his older cousin, Mike. Now, Mike is a little bit older, and by a little bit, I mean like he's already been to Vietnam and back, right? Hanging out with a 10-year-old boy, giving him marijuana. Oh, but it gets worse. So, his cousin actually was probably an even worse psychopath than Richie turned out to be. Um, well, let's keep in so, mind that he, his cousin, mm-hmm. I mean, it, you know, they sent kids over to Vietnam. Yeah. So, I mean, he was a kid that got sent to Vietnam or went to Vietnam for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And now he's back. He's definitely screwed up in the head. Yeah. I mean, this, like you said before, like this is before they really knew what PTSD was or how it affected yeah. people. Um, so little Richie, he was heavily influenced by Mike. Um, and Mike was actually a decorated U.S. Army Green Beret combat veteran. Um, he loved to boast about his horrific crimes that he committed during Vietnam War. So um, those horrific crimes included raping and torturing and murdering Vietnamese women. And not only did he boast about these stories to his very high 10-year-old cousin, he showed him Polaroids of the women that he had raped, tortured, and beheaded while, you know, eventually killing them. I mean, there's true crime photos that are hard for me to look at as an adult. Right. Right. Who's not stoned out of my mind. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. There's some that really get me. I'm like, oh, man, wow, that's rough. Much less being, yeah, 10 years old, in your formative years, and, you know, high out of your mind, which, again, your brain then becomes very susceptible to those images, and it can change how your mind works. I mean... And so you're from looking up to this guy. This and is, you look up to him and you see that it's okay. He came back. He's, he's living here in the United States and he's off scot-free. Didn't get punished for his war crimes. Like, And if you spend the, your nights in the cemetery to escape, you know, your home life, uh, here's a guy that's buddying up with you, being nice to you, giving you attention. Right. So, I mean, we... Young boys especially, they look up to older boys, and this kid was obviously went through a lot, and I, I just, it's just like a, as we will see later, it's the perfect storm to create the ultimate psychopath. So on top of showing his young cousin pictures of the women that he tortured and murdered, he also taught Richard about stealth attacks. Um, you know, how to stealthily attack someone, and then Richard would obviously go on to use that later during his assaults. So taught him how to sneak into people's homes and kill them. Basically, it's like how to become a psychopathic killer, 101. So on top of Richie being subjected to these horrible photos and marijuana at the tender age of 
10 years old. Yo, I cannot even imagine my eight-year-old high. I, I can't imagine. So a 10-year-old. Anyway, on top of all of that, little Richie also was a witness to his cousin Mike killing his wife Jessie during a domestic argument. Uh, Mike killed his wife by shooting her in the head, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I think in the face with a 38 caliber rifle. Now, Mike was found not guilty by reason of insanity, and he was also never punished for his war crimes, as I mentioned earlier. So, following the murder of Jesse, Ramirez had become sullen and withdrawn from his family and peers, and it was the beginning of his own descent into darkness. Um, after this incident, he started developing an interest in Satanism, something that would shape his worldview as an adult. So, to me, I mean, he sees his cousin do this awful thing, all these awful things, and he doesn't even get in trouble for it. Really. Yeah, he's getting away. I mean, you have to keep in mind that he's 10. Right. Um, and uh, on drugs... Mm-hmm. Um, so his perspective of things would be extremely skewed and distorted mm-hmm. uh, compared to how we as adults would look at a situation. Right. I mean, you see, you know, uh, you're running around with a group of kids as a little kid and one of them throws a rock through a window and you all take off running and nobody gets in trouble. So the next day you go throw rocks at windows. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's witnessing this guy that's, like I said, was giving him attention and the things that were missing from his life, mm-hmm. looking up to him as a role model, and this guy saying these things are okay to do, and look, I'm not getting in trouble for it. Yeah, and we will see this come into play more and more during his actions later during his more violent crimes. So during this time... Richie, little Richie, he actually goes to live with his sister and her husband. Now, he's a little bit older and, you know, around 12 or so, and he's living with them, and he's just so eager to get away from the violence of his home with his father. And so he goes to live with his sister, who has always loved him and, you know, tried to take care of him. However, Little did anyone else know, his brother-in-law was um, up to some no-good nocturnal activities of his own, such as voyeurism and breaking into homes. And not only was he just, you know, doing his little nighttime shenanigans, he was taking Little Richie with him. (laughs) So he would take Little Richie to go be a voyeur and break into homes, which basically was training this child on how to get into in and out of homes successfully in the middle of the night, which we see obviously comes into play later on. This family has some really horrible hobbies. I mean, like, is there nothing else to do in El Paso, Texas? But like, <laughs> I mean, but it's it's awful. I'm sorry, I'm laughing, but it it's it's just it's like the perfect storm for how to create the Night Stalker. Yeah, I mean, again, another older male role model. Hey, this is okay. We're getting away with it. This is how you do it. I'm one of those people that I do believe that. Not everyone is born evil or born a psychopath. And Richard Ramirez, to me, in my opinion, is a formed 
killer in that, you know, he has all these things happen. Plus, as we've seen in other cases, he did have head trauma uh, twice in his early, early life. Um, once when he was two, he had a dresser fall on his head and caused some um, some brain injuries. And then when he was a little bit older, his sister hit him in the head with a swing on accident, knocked him unconscious. And he had, you know, uh, lobe issues from that. I don't know if it was frontal lobe or what. But, you know, that goes into your formative um, how your brain forms. And so, you know, there's there could be a stunted growth there that could have him not think the way that normal humans are supposed to think. Improper brain development. Right. And I would assume, I mean, <laughs> from the sounds of his home life, they probably didn't, like, get the top-notch medical treatment for him and, you know, take continued trips to doctors and therapists and everything to make sure that he was okay. Right, right, of course not. We have little Richard's years up until about the ninth grade. So about the ninth grade, he really just wasn't feeling school. So he dropped out of Jefferson High School in South Central El Paso. And he looked for a job at that time because he just really wasn't feeling school, like I said. He found a job at a nearby hotel. But instead of being a diligent employee, he used the opportunity to sneak into the Holiday Inn's rooms and steal hotel guest belongings, right? Okay. Well, one day a woman was in her hotel room and Richard had broken and attempted to rape her. This resulted in little Richie being knocked out as her husband returned to the room. All charges were dropped later because the couple who were from out of state didn't show up at the court hearing. So about the age of 22, Richard Ramirez moved to California and basically became a drifter who didn't have any social relationships except for sporadic contact with his family. I mean, right out the gate, uh, you know, getting this job and stealing (laughs) from Mm -hmm. customers, going through their belongings, uh, attempting to rape a woman, it's already apparent that he thought you can do these things and get away with it. Right. And now he's really starting to go out on his own path and pioneer his own uh, criminal future. Right. And so, you know, this, so he's 22. He settles in California. Now, he, I think he was arrested for all of his really horrible crimes at the age of like 24. So, all of his really awful crimes that are known about happen in a two-year span. And he's one of the most prolific serial killers in, in United States history. I mean, I, I'm not trying to give him, like, credit, like, or idolize him, I guess, but I, that's pretty impressive, I would say. Yeah. He's a young thing. Like, that's so young to me. I mean, what? <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness he was caught. Amen. Yeah. Um, Which we'll get into kind of why he was caught. So you already have, like, you'll see in the first few crimes, he just has this aura of, I don't care. Like, he's got a serious case of, I don't give a, you know? Yeah. I think we've talked about this and we've agreed that we believe there were definitely a lot more crimes that he was not 
ever found guilty ever charged for. I mean, if you look at um, his first major hoorah that the police were aware of, mm-hmm. uh, once they started investigating him, of course, you know, we'll talk about it, but they didn't realize they were investigating him at first. <laughs> right. But, but right. once you go back, it's pretty apparent that, like, it doesn't have any of the telltale signs of this is a guy starting out on this path. Right. It, right. it seems like he's very experienced and has done this before. Throughout this, we reference the Netflix documentary quite a bit um, because it just came out and it's still pretty relevant. They, The thing that I really enjoyed about the Netflix documentary, they covered it kind of from the detective's point of view. Um, they did cover his crimes and such, but they covered more just kind of the detective story on it and how it developed and where they were with it. And so what we try to do on this podcast was cover the little known facts that they didn't cover in the documentary. However, in the documentary and spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, stop this podcast, go watch it and then come back and keep listening. Um, they revealed some stuff about him that you know, I, I call myself a true crime junkie because I literally have heard every documentary, every show, every podcast on every main serial killer, at least. And there were facts in that documentary that I didn't know that nobody knew, um, especially so in specifically about the child rape cases or the child cases. Um, and that was just so crazy to me. It, it's like it really hit home that Richard Ramirez, nobody was safe from him. Nobody was safe from the Night Stalker. He would hurt people from little, like the age of two, all the way up to the age, you know, elderly. Everyone in between was game. And that is just terrifying. It really hit home how terrifying that time was. He wasn't just a killer. I mean, this guy was literally a predator in every mm-hmm. sense of the word. Yes, yes, he was. And that's kind of what his crimes uh, depicted, looking back on it, was him surviving and satisfying his addictions. Mm-hmm. And his addictions were horrible. You know, when he first started his crimes, like he had a couple names. But eventually they came up with the Night Stalker because there was a a TV hit movie in 1972 called The Night Stalker about a vampire serial killer terrorizing the people of Las Vegas. And so the other names they had come up with were Walk-In Killer, Valley Intruder, The Screen Door Intruder, all of which the Herald Examiner came up with. And it just they didn't have that. They didn't strike fear. And so when they decided to dub him the Night Stalker based on that movie, it just really struck fear in the hearts of um, of Los Angeles residents. It really disgusted me. I mean, especially in modern times, uh, the current climate, especially with this huge, you know, uh, opinions about the media are very strong, we'll say. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's kind of been brought out in the spotlight how media companies will push an agenda and go for ratings as opposed to putting out true news and newsworthy events. And it just it kind of disgusted me watching this documentary 
where they talked about different things that the media did, where it was just like, do you guys not care about the people, about the victims? Like, it just seemed like they were just wanting the story. They they were wanting, you know, their newspapers bought or their right. news show to be watched. They didn't care, you know, what was actually happening. And it was like, whenever they're going through the names of trying to come up with a name that really scares people, like, <laughs> well, that's good. Find find the most terrifying name you can to strike fear into the hearts of the public. I mean, it just makes me wonder if they read the same crime reports that I had to read for this show. Because, you know, I've seen all the documentaries. I've heard the podcast. I've read the books. But when I had to read the details of some of these crimes out loud for this podcast... There were some that really, really bothered me and hit home, hit really close to home. And I can't fathom then turning and being like, oh, hey, um, yeah, I'm going to idolize this guy and like make money off of him. And I mean, just, you know, like we're talking about this. Yeah, but it's just the way the media sensationalizes everything. It takes away from the victims. And I think that's why uh, law enforcement has quit giving so much information to the media because yes. they've been burnt so many times yes and they really have they uh it's it's become a non like they there's so many more serial killers out there now that are just as bad as the night stalker and all of you know his ilk but we don't hear about them because law enforcement stopped giving them credit and stopped giving them attention right richard he's drifting around los angeles he's um you know, doing what drifters do. He's heavy into drugs. He's on LSD and all kinds of other stuff, um, drifting around seedy hotels. And, you know, so on June 28th, 1984, 79-year-old Jenny Vincal was found brutally murdered in her apartment in Glassell Park, Los Angeles. She had been stabbed repeatedly while asleep in her bed and her throat slashed so deeply that she was nearly decapitated. Ramirez's fingerprint was found on a mesh screen he removed to gain access through an open window. So this is the first in a long series of murders that are attributed to the Night Stalker. And right out the gate, we see an attack that is very violent and very angry. Yes, and on a 79-year-old woman. A 79-year-old woman... Uh, compared to a young man in his early 20s, there's not... uh, I mean, I hope she gave him hell. Yeah. But you would think that there's probably not going to be that much of a struggle. Right. And the fact that, you know, repeatedly stabbed her, almost decapitated her, slashing her Mm -hmm. throat. I mean, it's... This guy is overkill <laughs> every time. It's no just pun intended. Yeah. Like you can tell there's a lot of emotion. You know, it's just you can you can kind of tell already that there's training that he's employing um, his night stalker tendencies that he was taught um, by his cousin and brother-in-law. So, you know, he found someone who was an easy prey, basically. Mm-hmm. So then... March 17th, 1985. So this is, you know, quite a bit later. 
And as we, you know, we kind of talked about between you and my, and you and myself, and uh, we decided that probably there was a lot going on between there that was never found out to be him. Right. Because we never see someone prolific like this that took that long of a break. Yeah. I mean, uh, after this next um, event, mm-hmm. they're just bam, 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 bam. Yes. So, so why, why is would there, there be this, such a gap? Right, right. Why is there this huge multi-month gap? Yes. I think it was like nine months. Okay. So March 17th, 1985, Ramirez attacked 22-year-old Maria Hernandez outside of her home in Rosemead, California. He shot her in the face with a 22 caliber handgun after she pulled into her into her garage. Now, she survived because she held up her hand to block the shot, and she had her keys in her hand, and it ricocheted off the keys. Um, it did injure her hand, and I think it did injure her face a little bit. Inside the house, her roommate, Dale Yoshi Okazaki, age 34, heard the gunshot, and she ducked behind a counter whenever she saw Ramirez enter the kitchen. Now, here's the really screwed up part about this and how you know how evil he was. She was crouched behind this counter and she has both hands on the counter and she is just hiding behind the counter. And he stands there silent until she thinks that he's gone. And then she like pokes her head up above the counter to check and make sure he's gone. He looks her in the eyes, makes sure he makes eye contact and shoots her in the head. He waited until he could see the fear in her eyes, and he shot her in the head. Disturbing. I mean, that's that's a control freak to me. You know, he gets off on fear. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. So, I mean, that one was really just the beginning of how disturbed he is. So then he goes outside now maria had run around the garage out into the front yard and she was going to go run for help and she thought he would come out the garage door no he comes out the front door and surprised her and she surprised him by being there and he raised the gun and pointed it at her again and she she said something to the effect of you've already shot me once do you have to shoot me again and he lowered the gun and he turned and he walked away luckiest person on the planet <laughs> i mean like the bullet how... ricochets the first time yeah <laughs> and the second yeah. time he's like all right so aside from her being like literally the luckiest person that's ever lived how disturbed is he that he shot at her thought he killed her apparently didn't shot her roommate and then she said hey you've already shot me once you don't need to shoot me again and he's like Oh yeah, you're right. I already got what I needed. He turns and walks off. Like that's that's so much more eerie than if he would have shot her again as a bloodthirsty fiend, you know? Yeah, and uh, uh, the point that he literally walked away. I mean, just yeah. walked yeah. down he the didn't street, run. didn't run, right. isn't trying to make a getaway, doesn't care. It's almost like he knew that he wasn't going to get caught, or at least that's right. what he believed. Right. He already was showing his I don't give a attitude. Now, this is the beginning of a trend that we're going to see with Richie Ramirez 
the first, you know, trait being that he doesn't really care about anything. The second trait being that if he doesn't get what he needs, the next one is going to be worse because he's already in a rage that he didn't get what he needed. So within an hour of the home invasion where he had killed Dale Okazaki, Ramirez pulled 30-year-old Sai Leon Yu out of her car in Monterey Park, shot her twice with a 22 caliber handgun, and fled. She was pronounced dead upon arrival at the hospital. The two murders and an attempted third in a single day attracted extensive coverage from the news media, who dubbed the attacker, described as a curly-haired guy with bulging eyes and wide-spaced rotting teeth, the walk-in killer and the valley intruder. Uh, what I thought about was interesting about that, which they pointed this out in the documentary, um, we had the situation, the first situation, uh, where he you know, just killed the young woman inside the apartment waiting for her to peek up over the counter. And they pointed out in the second one that he could have just walked up to the car and shot her. Mm-hmm. But he dragged her out of the car, out into the street, and scared the crap out of her first and made sure he was looking her in the face whenever he killed her. Mm-hmm. He had to see the fear yeah. in her eyes. Yeah. It's just so demented. You know, it, it's just, it's a control thing. It's just, it, it's just demented. So that was March 17th. March 27th, 10 days later. Ramirez enters a home that he had burglarized a year earlier, just outside of Whittier, California, and approximately 2 a.m. He killed the sleeping Vincent Charles Zazara, age 64, with a gunshot to his head from the 22 caliber handgun. Zazara's wife, Maxine Lavinia Zazara, age 44, was awakened by the gunshot. Ramirez beat her, bound her hands while demanding to know where her valuables were. While he's ransacked the room, Maxine escaped her bonds and retrieved a shotgun from under the bed, which was not loaded. Okay, first of all, that's a pet peeve of mine. Like, it's just a cute paperweight at that point. Whatever. The infuriated Ramirez shot her three times with the twenty-two, then fetched a larv carving knife from the kitchen. He mutilated her body by stabbing her several times and then gouged out her eyes and placed them in a jewelry box, which he took with him. Now, the autopsy determined that the mutilations were postmortem. Small gratitude there? Like what? (laughs) Uh, Vincent and Maxine's bodies were discovered by their son, Peter. Poor Peter. Ramirez left footprints from a pair of Avia sneakers in the flower beds, which the police photographed and cast. This was virtually the only evidence that police had at the time. Bullets found at the scene were matched to those at previous attacks, and the police determined that a serial killer was, in fact, at large. And already displaying a completely different MO than the first attacks. Right. I mean, at this point, he is employing his night prowler, night stalker MO, but... And nobody's safe. And and the rage, you know, that's just like so much rage. (laughs) We've talked about this uh, before, and it will become apparent throughout the show about his emotional state during these crimes and afterwards. It's almost like he's 
still that kid carrying out these crimes. Mm-hmm. A lot of his behavior is very childlike. Um, I, I would say with the having to terrify the victims and everything, that's obviously a thing about power. He probably uh, wanted to feel power since he was a victim himself as a little kid. Mm-hmm. But the way he has these fits of rage, these emotional outbursts, I mean, to me, that's a, a, a stark contrast to his cool, calm demeanor in other situations. Yeah, he has. It's like he suppresses it. And I'm sure he did, you know, with abuse victims. That's something that you find is that um, they're really good at bottling up all of their emotion because they're not allowed to show it. And then it just comes out all at once in like a spew of emotion, whereas his is rage, you know, because of everything he went through and all of that. I mean, you have that one situation where he went from walking away whenever she pointed out that he had already shot her and now he's just casually walking off to now we're carving out people's eyeballs and taking them as souvenirs. That's to me, (laughs) that's a pretty wide spectrum of behavior. He's all over the place from the victimology to the actual crimes to everything. He's all over the place, but he's God, I don't want to, I mean, to even how he commits the crimes with what, you know, what tools he uses. But I don't want to make him sound like great or anything. I don't want to idolize him. No, he's definitely not great, but But he's possibly one of the most disturbed serial killers there ever was. He's really disturbed, but he was really good at what he did. I just, I hate to say it, but he really did have skills um, that he picked up from being trained as... You know, stealth attack and breaking into people's houses. He had, like, excellent training from his family to become what he became. Yeah. Uh, Being able to enter homes, exit homes. And, like, these are in well-populated areas. And most of the time, he's there for an extended period of time. Mm -hmm. And he's shooting people multiple times. Right. But Uh. it's also (laughs) known that he spent, like... He used whatever was handy to tie them, bind them, and kill them, or yeah. beat them, or whatever stab happened them, to be there. Whatever. So that happened. That was in March, at the end of March, May fourteenth, nineteen eighty-five. So we have a little month gap there. That now was that he was taking a little vacation, or was that that he was busy during that time and was never caught for those crimes? We don't know. The world may never know. May 14th, 1985. Ramirez returned to Monterey Park and entered the home of Bill Doy, age 66, and disabled wife Lillian, age 56. Surprising Doy in his bedroom, Ramirez shot him in the face with a 22 semi-automatic pistol as Doy went for his own handgun. After beating the mortally wounded man into unconsciousness, Ramirez entered Lillian's bedroom, bound her with thumb cuffs, and then raped her after he had ransacked the home for valuables. Bill Doy died of his injuries while in the hospital. Now, let me just say, I did not know prior to this that thumb cuffs were a thing. I thought, okay, maybe that was a precursor to what uh, policemen used back in the day. Um, Little did I know that that is a BDSM 
thing. I went down a rabbit hole during researching <laughs> this episode that I'm not going to apologize for. It was very educational. But thumb cuffs. Um, so the thumb cuffs specifically that Ramirez used. So you can imagine they're like little handcuffs that cuff your thumbs together instead of your wrists. Okay, cool. No, these were like serrated edges like a butter knife. Um, so that if you pulled your thumbs, it, it bit into your skin and it hurt. Like, okay, so they're already kind of like a torture device to me. And then it was actually came to be known that Lillian had pulled her thumb cuffs, pulled her thumbs out of the thumb cuffs so hard that she almost degloved her entire thumb and, you know, degloved for those not in the know means pulled the skin off of her thumb completely trying to get out of these thumb cuffs. So this is a situation I've been thinking about. <laughs> <laughs> I know that the whole thing is horrific and tragic, but to do that, to put yourself through that much agony to try and escape, there must have been something absolutely terrifying going on at the time. Right. I mean, most people would just be in shock and just lay there and get killed or whatever. Oh, um, me. <laughs> well, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, to rip your own flesh off to escape these thumb cuffs. I mean, you're basically yanking your thumbs off. I mean, you know, the skin, the flesh, the meat, it's all ripping and tearing. Your your Ooh. bones are being yanked out of sockets. Yeah. Like, horrible pain. Horrible. This woman... I can't imagine how terrified she was. Right. So she's disabled. And she knows that her husband is dead at this point. Um, you know, she's laying there and Richard had already ransacked the entire house and then came back and, you know, assaulted her. So, I mean, she, of course she was terrified. And and besides the fact that Richard, you know, all the witness statements, the way that survived... They all said that he was unkempt. Um, he had extremely strong body odor because he was a drifter. He didn't really shower. Um, and his teeth, like his breath smelled like rotting meat. And his teeth were like brown and black and nasty, you know. So there's this person that's doing the attacking. Right. Plus his eyes were like this dark black and he just looked demented. And uh, a lot of it's left out of public release things um mm -hmm. i'm sure you ran across it doing your deep dive <laughs> but uh <laughs> one of the things that people need to remember is he tortured people right. he was into torture he yes. did a lot of horrible things besides yes. just killing and raping the people mm -hmm. yeah there were definitely things that were left out of the media that you have to dig a little for, but um, he, he definitely was into torture. Um, thumb cuffs, specifically, but other things that are thumb much cuffs. worse. Okay, so we start to see a pattern here, because it takes more than one to be a pattern, right? He left Lillian alive. Now, we will start to see a pattern here that when he leaves somebody alive, he makes the next person pay. He is full of rage. So that was May 14th, May 29th, 1985. Ramirez drove a stolen car to Monrovia, and he stopped at the house of Mabel, a.k.a. Ma, Bell. 
age 83, and her disabled sister Florence, a.k.a. Nettie Lang, age 81. So Ma and Nettie, 83 and 81. This one bothers me a bit. He found a hammer in the kitchen. He then went about bludgeoning and binding Lang in her room and then bound and bludgeoned Belle before using an electrical cord to shock her. Here's where some more torture comes in. After raping Lang, he used Belle's lipstick to draw the satanic pentagram symbol on her thigh as well as the walls of both bedrooms. The women were found two days later alive but comatose, and then Belle later died of her injuries. None of that needed. Not warranted at all. Two elderly women, you know. One disabled. One disabled. I mean, they're both elderly. Right. Right. Disabled. Like, (laughs) come on, man. Do you have to be that bad? Okay, he beat and raped them. And then shocked them? Really? Yeah. I mean, why not? Why not? Because they weren't terrified enough. Like, this sort of conversation (laughs) is so messed up because it's like, you know, for weirdos like us that are fascinated by this sort of thing, not because, I mean, it's horrible what happens to the victims. Just the why, the psychology of all of it. What what happened in that situation where he made the decision that she needed to be electrocuted? How much is too much? How much is right. what? That's what, what I was saying about overkill. Right. Yeah, I, I just can't even. I, obviously, we can't understand why people do what they do, the awful things that people do. However, there's always kind of a a little path that you can kind of guess like okay they did this because it was handy or blah 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 but he is just like all over the place he's feeding that addiction that he has to terrorizing people and killing them yes and overpowering them and it's almost i mean he's acting like a junkie towards it like he's chasing that fix he's trying to get that that first high and he can't i don't know i don't know kind of maybe like maybe that's one theory but for me Um, From a psychology standpoint, I just feel like he is, because he had no control over his childhood, he, like, this is his control fix. Like, he needs to be able to be in control. And since he let let Lillian live, he was then in a rage and he exerted his control over these two women by hurting them so much. And I don't know, it... It's, it's just it's so hard because obviously without talking to him, we'll never know. And he wouldn't probably even know. But to me, it's just this is our first example of what we were talking about, where after he yeah. lets somebody live, he throws a tantrum. Right. Yeah. Letting someone live. And then he, you know, just goes full rage on the next person and makes them pay. He does whatever he wants. And he gets what he needs and he doesn't care because he doesn't think that he's held to the same rules as everyone else. So that's what we see here is that he didn't get what he needed. So he goes to the next one. He does whatever he wants, gets what he needs from these women and then goes about his business. So, you know, he actually left them alive. He left them to die, but he did not kill these older women the next day Ramirez drove the same stolen car to Burbank 
snuck into the home of Carol Kyle, who was 42, and at gunpoint, he bound Kyle and her 11-year-old son with handcuffs and then ransacked the house. He released Kyle to direct him where the family's valuables were, and then he raped her repeatedly. Now, when Ramirez was raping her, he repeatedly ordered her not to look at him, telling her at one point he would cut her eyes out. He fled the scene after retrieving the child from the closet and binding the mother and son together with the handcuffs. So this is another pattern that we're going to see is he let the mother live, the mother and child live. And he warned her, don't look at me, because if she looked at him, he would have to kill her. And he clearly didn't want to do that. That's what I'm surmising just from all of the pattern that will come out. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) You know, um, because at that point... Yes, I agree with everything you're saying. And then whenever I start thinking about it, I mean, they had a description of the guy. People had already seen him. They they knew who they were chasing after an individual at this point. So, like, seeing him, uh, he didn't want to be identified, or he felt, I mean, no way. <laughs> he felt guilt if they looked at him and then had uh, to kill them? I don't think so. I think he just, there's something, because we see it later on, the mother and child come up again, unfortunately, and he lets them live. And I really think that in his twisted way, he did have a hard limit, and a mother and child is his hard limit. And we'll see it again here in a little bit, unfortunately. But, okay, so that was May 29th. A few days later, on the night of July 2nd, 1985, he drove a stolen car, another stolen car, because that's another thing that he does, by the way. He drove a stolen car to Arcadia and randomly selected the house of Mary Louise Cannon, age 75, another elderly widowed grandmother. And after quietly entering Cannon's home, he found her asleep in the bedroom. He bludgeoned her into unconsciousness with a lamp and then repeatedly stabbed her using a 10-inch butcher knife from the kitchen, and she was found dead at the scene. So here we see he let the mother and son live and then threw a tantrum and had to kill the next person. I mean, we don't even know how he chose his victims. So we don't know if he knew that there was a kid in the house beforehand or if he was just went into the house and that's the situation and he responded accordingly. Yeah, we really don't know much about that part, um, whether it was like a predator situation in that aspect, you know, whether he watched him, sat there in his car all day and watched them to see if there was a man in the house or whatever, because he does attack men Yeah. later on. I mean, I don't know. Okay, so that was July 2nd. July 5th. So we can see that, like, there's there's a little period here. He's ramping up, right? He's getting into it. July 5th, 1985, Ramirez broke into a home in Sierra Madre. Madre. <laughs> and bludgeoned 16-year-old Whitney Bennett with a tire iron as she slept in her bedroom. Now, Matt, I know this one bothers you. This one really got to you. She's 16 years old, and he bludgeoned her with a tire iron as she slept. After searching in vain for a knife in the kitchen, Ramirez attempted to strangle the girl with a telephone cord. 
He stated that he was startled to see the electrical sparks emanate from the cord. And then when his victim began to breathe, he fled the house, believing that Jesus Christ had intervened and saved her. The 16-year-old Whitney survived the savage beating, but had to have 478 stitches to close the lacerations on her scalp. Now, she suffered, clearly, but luckily she lived. Unluckily, he didn't get his kill, and you know what that means. Well, just back up for a second, though. (laughs) You mentioned that this one really bothered me, and it does. Yes. I have a 17-year-old stepdaughter that I have raised since she was three years old. So, of course, (laughs) that's what comes to mind. But it was the point where this girl uh, told everyone that all she remembers is going to bed. Fortunately, uh, she doesn't remember the attack. However, she woke up in the hospital, uh, probably in ICU, I would assume. Um, she was pretty much in a body cast. I mean, he he beat her with a tire iron. Um, 400 and something stitches. Can you imagine? I, I can't. I can't Every imagine. time you go to sleep and close your exactly. eyes. Exactly. And that's for the rest of your life. There, there's no getting over that. I would live in constant fear of my subconscious deciding to, all right, well, it's time to remember what you couldn't remember, and here you go. You know, I would live in constant fear of that. And just the, um, the emotions of she was home alone. It's the famous Night Stalker killer. And she did survive. How close she came to death. And the, and the only thing that saved her was his belief in Satanism. Yeah. So he believed that Jesus Christ had intervened and saved her. So as we know, he tried to kill her. It didn't work out. Somebody's got to pay. Somebody. He's Here we go. Two days later, July 7th, Ramirez burglarized the home of Joyce Lucille Nelson, age 61, in Monterey Park. Finding her asleep on her living room couch, he beat her to death. That's right. He didn't leave her alive for shenanigans. He beat her to death by using his fists and kicking her in the head. Completely personal. No weapons. Yeah. No weapons, no telephone cord, no tire iron, no knife. He was in a full rage. And in fact... A shoe print was found on imprinted on her face from an Avea shoe because that's how pissed off he was. I mean, they knew it, but, you know, in the documentary, it talks about how the shoe prints in particular were one of the items that they were using to tie the cases together. Right. So, yes. So Normally, the, the shoe print is found outside by a window in the mud. Um, I believe it was found, yeah, outside in the mud. Um, I think it was found, uh, there was a bloody shoe print on a blanket found yeah. in, in a Vea shoe, but this was on the victim's face. Yeah, they, they used the, the print the on form, her face. Yeah, in the form of a bruise. Like, imagine someone kicking you in the face so hard 
and stomping your face. That's what happened. And, um, yeah, in the documentary, the detectives go over how they traced the maker of this shoe, the make, model, and sell of this shoe to one person. And it's a big deal. So the shoe is a really big deal in the documentary. So um, to include it here uh, off of the victim's face. So that happened. He was mad. Little Richie was angry. After cruising two other neighborhoods, he returns to Monterey Park and chooses the home of Sophie Dickman, age 63. Ramirez assaulted and handcuffed Dickman at gunpoint, attempted to rape her. Now, just let's note that. Attempted to rape her and stole her jewelry. And when she swore to him that he had taken everything of value, he told her, swear on Satan. So he tried to beat the 16-year-old to death and believed that Jesus saved her. He flew into a rage. Two days later, he <clears throat> brutally killed an older woman. And then he wasn't done. It's like he had to prove it to himself that Satan was still real and in control. So he, you know, chose another victim and then made her swear on Satan. And I mean, it's just. I mean, do you think that his uh, satanic worship or whatever, do you think? That he believed that's what was keeping him safe and from being caught? I don't know. It's it's hard. You know, with any religion, you place your belief on something, in something. And when something comes along, rock the foundation of your belief system, it can mess you up. So maybe he thought that Jesus had intervened and he wanted to show Satan what a good soldier he was. I don't know. I can't even begin to like form logic on behalf of well, Richard Ramirez. We've heard people talk about, you know, uh, whenever these murders were taking place in the 80s, uh, devil worship was like a thing with the media, mm -hmm. you know. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. People were terrified. Like, I remember being a little kid and there was like news stories in Oklahoma about, you know, they found signs of devil worship out in the woods and they did a news report about it. Uh, Geraldo, you know, had his own show and like went into Satanism and found, you know, you know, the truth about what's going on and rock and roll and Dungeons and Dragons and the list goes on and on. <laughs> and they talk about how uh, Richard Ramirez uh, bought into that and used it as a tool to freak people out and scare them and make his whole persona to the media even more terrifying but yet we see these instances in these attacks where it sure seems like he really believed in it like he was actually practicing he wasn't just using it as a tool to scare people yeah it wasn't a tool and it wasn't sensationalism as is later believed so actually if we go ahead and rewind back to um the murder of you know the the college girl and where he tried to shoot Maria. Mm -hmm. um, so that second murder that he's charged for, he actually left behind an ACDC hat. Yeah. Now images of the hat were released to the public and this initiated a media frenzy connecting the twisted serial killer to the rock band. 
So it actually was believed that Ramirez misunderstood the lyrics to a track featured on the band's Highway to Hell album released five years before the killings began. And the band's co-founder, Malcolm Young, explained, that song is not called Night Stalker, it's called Night Prowler. And it's about things you used to do when you were a kid, like sneaking into your girlfriend's bedroom when her parents were asleep or whatever. So, um, you know, the lyrics to that specific song are, was that a noise out your window or a shadow on your blind? And you lie there naked, like a body in a tomb, suspended animation as I slip into your room. Lead singer Brian Johnson also added, it just sickens you, you know, that you have anything to do with that kind of thing. So Richard Ramirez, he just, you know, he took that and just applied it to his beliefs. And so ACDC kind of became a thing for him, supposedly, allegedly. But um, I, I just thought that was really interesting, you know, kind of backs up the Satanism piece that this was a real thing for him. This was not sensationalism to him. Right. And uh, whenever I was younger, you know, there was the rumor floating around that uh, the letters ACDC actually stood for Antichrist Devil Child. Which now, I never heard until I, you said. I, that I don't to think me. it's true. <laughs> I mean, I think it's you know in reference yeah. to electricity. But <laughs> yeah. uh, that rumor was floating around. Maybe he heard that rumor. Maybe he he thought it was you know that's what it stood for, and he tied it into the Satanism and like you're saying, applied it to his own beliefs. Maybe he was just into rock and roll, heavy metal stuff like that. It's just so easy to interpret things the way you want to interpret them. Like, I will never forget my grandmother, my little German grandmother, telling me that ACDC meant like a zipper. You can go up or down, which also meant, and this was also in reference to a Ramstein song that I was really into, which also meant that you could be bisexual. You could be this way or that way. So, I mean, that's how it was explained to me what wow. ACDC meant. <laughs> well, see, <laughs> like, I, yes. I, I've never heard that before. So, we're so the, the angel child, devil child or whatever <laughs> like that, you know, to me, like it was explained that that means bisexuality. And I remember thinking, wow, those guys were so brave to name their band after that. <laughs> I was so impressed. <laughs> I know. Oh, my life is so weird. So that was, you know, July 7th that the last murder happened. July 20th. Again, not very much time. Ramirez purchased a machete. Purchased. Like, he decided to plan this out a little bit. Get all amped up for his little nighttime activities. You know. Purchased. I don't want to stop you here, but (laughs) am I the only one that's bothered that, like, there's not some sort of, like, thing about buying machetes? I know. I mean, but if you think about it, like, 98% of people use them for, like, legit purposes. No, just 98% of people no. don't use machetes, ever. <laughs> yes, they, 98% of people who buy machetes buy them to, you know, cut brush and... Yeah, they buy them because it's a machete. <laughs> they don't buy them because they actually need them. Like, we, we don't live in the South American rainforest. You don't need a really, machete. Really? Because, like, I can literally, I can name fewer people who don't have one than the people I know who do have one. Oh, we've got three. Like, <laughs> <laughs> So, in actuality, you're a serial killer or no, you're Dora saying, the Explorer. Uh, we haven't decided yet. So, true story. <laughs> 
two of the machetes that we own were mine when I was a kid. <laughs> and yeah, I cut brush with them. I wasn't blazing trails through the jungle, though. I had it because it was a machete. That's why I got it. And the third one that we have was actually my stepson bought it whenever he was like 10 because it was a machete. And that was like the only weapon he could actually legally uh, purchase. Mm-hmm. Weird. But uh, yeah, I mean, to me, it just seems like guy in California walks into a hardware store or a sporting goods store or whatever and buys a machete. Somebody should be called. But That's it's all like I'm a saying. guy. It's not just, you know. Uh, somebody walking in and buying that it's someone that looks like he did yeah he was a very creepy looking dude a goblin okay ramirez richie little richie here purchases a machete before driving yet another stolen car and a toyota so i mean he really had a thing for toyotas he likes toyotas i mean i can't complain i have two of them i love toyotas they're just really good cars some would say the best getaway car <laughs> uh they blend in everywhere i can very rarely find my car if it's not for all the bigfoot stickers okay so he drives this stolen toyota to glendale california he chose the home of layla nighting age 66 and her husband maxon age 68 that's such a cool name i know maxine maxon Okay, he burst into the sleeping couple's bedroom and hacked them both with the machete. He then, okay, so you think hacked, right? He killed them. No, no, nay, nay. He then kills them with shots to the head from the twenty-two caliber handgun. Oh, but is he done? (laughs) Nay, nay. He further mutilates their bodies with the machete before robbing the house of valuables. And after quickly fencing the stolen items from the nighting residence, Ramirez drives to Sun Valley. Again, why hack the... He's not trying to dispose of the bodies. Tantrum. It takes extra time to post-mortem hack these people up. At that point, it's like, you know, he already hacked them, then shot them. The further hacking is almost like it comes across to me like he's pushing to see how far he can push to see what he can get away with uh, i mean yeah just like you know uh the different stories of him like eating at people's houses and like yes hanging so out there afterwards yeah. like so that's something i didn't quite um mention yet but at most of these places where he tied them up or killed them or whatever he goes to their fridge and he gets food out of the fridge and he starts eating it and then he goes like and explores the house and sees what he can take and then he eats some more and just leaves the food out and it's kind of a blatant f you to the cops like and the victims just yeah i'm chilling here and these people are dead and what what are you gonna do you know, it's just it, to me, it's just a, like a big middle finger to the to everybody. He does not care. And it is it is slammed home by him every single case. He does not care. So disturbing. Why didn't he shower and like, take their clothes? <laughs> Grab some deodorant it, off the dresser. Brush his teeth with their toothbrush. I don't know. Because you said it, he doesn't care. (laughs) You couldn't, like, swiggle some mouthwash while you were, you know, deciding whether to use the butcher knife or the tire iron. I'm just saying. It's funny because, I mean, we'll talk about this later in the show, because he ultimately becomes, like, this sex symbol, which is weird 
because throughout his actual killing time, the police kept on pushing the point of how grotesque he was. I mean, witnesses were reporting his smell and his horrible teeth. Yes, 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 and how demonic he looked. And so later, yeah, we'll find out later how they, how his defense lawyers fixed that little issue. Okay, so that was July 20th, and then he drove to just Sun Valley, right? Right? Yeah, he's not done. Even after all that rage, approximately 4.15 a.m., same night, he breaks into the home of the Kavanath family. He shot the sleeping Chanarong Kavanath in the head with a 25 caliber handgun, killing him instantly. Then, repeatedly raped and beat Somkid Kavanath. He bound the couple's terrified eight-year-old son before dra- dragging Somkid around the house to reveal the location of any valuable items, which he then stole. During his assault, he demanded that she swear to Satan that she was not hiding any money from him. Now, first of all, any any of the ones that involve the children bother me because that's like my worst fear. But so that's if that's not awful enough, then he's making her swear to Satan, which, you know, as as a Christian, you know, like in a time of crisis, you want to turn to the turn to God. So she's having to swear to Satan to save her own life. She's got her son in the other room, and that just bothers me. You know, that's all she's thinking about the whole time. Yeah. So here we see that once again, he lets the mother and the son and the child live. And then, of course, he moves on and commits another murder. Now, this is actually a week or two later that he commits the next murder. On August 6th, 1985, he drives to Northridge and breaks into the home of Chris and Virginia Peterson. He creeps into the bedroom and startles Virginia, who's 27, and he shoots her in the face with a 25 caliber semi-automatic handgun. He then shoots Chris in the neck and he attempts to flee. Chris fights back while avoiding being hit with two more shots during the struggle before Ramirez manages to escape. And the couple survives their injuries. Now, you know, there's a little one or two week break between when he, you know, raped, he killed the husband, raped the mother. The son was in the next room. He goes on to the next couple. It's a young couple, which is not really in his M.O. very much. Um and the husband fights back and it seems like when they fight back that's really when richard has a problem yeah uh it like we talked about we don't have any idea how he chose his targets but it's almost like this one may have been rushed a little bit it was kind of sloppy which he did talk about uh with the police after he was arrested that like yeah, there were botched times. There were times when things were screwed up because I did it so much. Which is kind of scary. Like, he just got lackadaisical about it. Like, eh. Yeah. Another yeah. day at the office. You know. You know. Statistics, <laughs> didn't quite, you know. <laughs> didn't quite proofread that one. Sorry, boss. You know, it's just, oh, it's crazy. Okay. August 8th. That's two days later. That, you know what that means. Richard drives another stolen car to Diamond Bar, California. And he chooses the home of Sakina Abawath, age 27, and 27, I'm sorry, and her husband Elias Abawath, age 31. Sometime after 2.30 in the morning, 
He enters the house and goes to the master bedroom. He instantly kills sleeping Elias with a shot to the head from a twenty-five caliber handgun. He's not making any mistakes this time. No risks, no chances. This is the one that gets me. This is the only one that is really hard to talk about for me. He handcuffs and beats Sakina while forcing her to reveal the location of the family's jewelry. He then brutally rapes her. He repeatedly demands that she swear on Satan that she will not scream during his assaults. And when the couple's three-year-old son enters the bedroom, Ramirez ties up the child and then continues to rape Sakina. After he leaves, Sakina unties her son and sends him to the neighbors for help. Now this one, this one bothers me every single time I read it or hear it or talk about it. I just cannot even imagine what that mother is thinking during all of that, what that poor child is witnessing. You know, you know, the dad is, uh, the dad's already dead. I mean, it's just. It's not something anybody should ever have to think about. No, it's the most horrific thing to me that could ever happen. That is, to me, that is just, even if you didn't kill the husband and child, or I'm sorry, the wife and child, you might as well have because you ruined their lives forever. You traumatized them forever. Neither of them will ever be the same. So the ones that he left alive, did he really do them any favors? They get to go on living, but they're traumatized forever. You know? Yeah. Mm. It's just that one, that one is the hardest one for me. And every time, every single time I see it, read it, hear it, it just, that one hits home. The same thing happened to a woman uh, that lived at the end of my street. Whenever I was late elementary school, she had a four-year-old son and came home from the grocery store one evening, and there was a uh, man with a ski mask waiting inside her home and raped her in front of the little boy and then left. It was a scary thing. That's how I learned about rape and what rape was and everything um, because everybody I mean the whole neighborhood was terrified after that well yeah as they should be I mean that is my biggest fear like I think we've had this discussion regarding you know Night Stalker and everything we had you know talked about this a little bit and that's something that in my darkest hours that I think about because I would (laughs) I know my children my children are not super obedient and I would know that I would try to get them to turn away or run or cover their head or something and I know my children and they would not do that because they don't listen to anything I tell them to do and um, I just wouldn't want them to ever see that or witness that you know and so to have them have that little boy I mean he was three but I know three-year-olds I know three-year-olds remember things that you would never think they would remember it's imprinted on their subconscious right even even if they don't consciously remember it mm -hmm. it's going to affect them it's just it hits home how diabolical he was and how much you know yes he murdered he raped he killed he tortured um but this is just like psychological torture psychological torture to me is just a whole nother level of evil you know 
So moving on before I start crying or something <laughs> embarrassing, Ramirez, who had been following the media coverage of his crimes, left the L.A. area and headed to San Francisco. On August 18, 1985, he entered the home of Peter and Barbara Pan. He shot the sleeping Peter Pan, age 66, in the temple with a 25 caliber handgun. And then he beat and sexually assaulted Barbara, age 62, before shooting her in the head and leaving her for dead. It's like he wasn't, you know, taking any chances at this point. Um, at the crime scene, Ramirez used her lipstick to draw a pentagram and the phrase Jack the Knife on the bedroom wall. And when it was discovered that the ballistics and shoe print evidence from the L.A. crime scenes matched the Pan crime scene, San Francisco's then-mayor, Diane Feinstein, divulged the information in a televised press conference. The leak infuriated the detectives in the case as they knew the killer would be following the media coverage, which gave him perfect opportunity to destroy the crucial forensic evidence. Ramirez, who had indeed been watching the press, dropped his size 11.5 Avea sneakers over the side of the Golden Gate Bridge that very night. He then remained in the area for a few more days before heading back to the L.A. area. Diane Feinstein was in the middle of a campaign, and she wanted to prove to everybody that the San Francisco PD was on it. They were taking control of this serial killer, and oh man, they were on it. They had evidence, everything. And L.A. PD, the detectives covering this case, were like, great, you just blew us all out of the water. You know, they're very into um, sharing, uh, you know, facts between the departments, making sure that everybody is on the same page and they know the same evidence and everything. You know, they wanted <clears throat> San Francisco PD to know about the shoe print and everything so that they could understand that they were all tracking the same killer. But her broadcasting it like that, what a dumbass. And we're not pushing a political opinion one way or the other by saying that. Diane Feinstein is still very much a politician. And uh, a dumbass. <laughs> but at the time, uh, this was a dumbass move. <laughs> this was, I mean, but that's what I was talking about with the media and everything. And politicians were just as bad using whatever secret information they could to make themselves appear more superior or in the know than other outlets or you know she's on top of things because like the guy just now killed somebody in san francisco well congratulations <laughs> he's been killing people yeah and almost ruined the case entirely i mean he like, could have gotten the away to the kingdom yeah here you go thank you are you kidding right now? and this was also a time where you know you've heard about how he smells and his you know, dental problems and everything. But, man, he really slobbed out on this one. I mean, th this is the case where he, like, masturbated on the floor, threw up everywhere, just really trashed the place out. Like, the Jack the Knife, like a reference to Jack the Ripper on the wall. Like, it was really weird to me. I think he was really high whenever he did this one. What better way to make your life better than getting high and changing your reality right and slaughtering and people. then well you know when you're into night stalking and blood guts gore rape torture um 
yeah, drugs just enhance that overall feeling and give you a great experience. So this one was really kind of over the top. I think that it was like a vacation for him, you know, so he's in L.A. He's doing the same old, same old. He takes a little mini vacay to San Francisco and then he really gets his freak on like he just goes all out. And I think it was like to throw them off the scent or maybe just see if they were paying attention. August 24th. So a few days later, Ramirez traveled 76 miles south of Los Angeles in a stolen orange Toyota. He went to Mission Viejo. That night, he arrived at the home of James Romero Jr., who had just returned from a family vacation to Rosarito Beach in Mexico. This one's interesting. Romero's son, 13-year-old James Romero III, happened to be awake and heard Ramirez's footsteps outside. Now, he heard something first. He was actually out in the garage, or he was going to the garage, and he heard footsteps, and he heard something weird, and he was like, hmm, don't know what that is. Maybe a cat. I don't know. Goes to the garage, and he's working on his, his bike. He hears the footsteps again, realizes that is somebody walking. He thinks it's a prowler. James goes and wakes up his parents. He was actually walking by his parents' room, and his dad woke up and said, what are you doing? And he said, I think there's someone outside. This kid is brave. Like, this kid has no fear. He wasn't even going to wake his parents. He was going to go confront this guy, this 13-year-old boy. And the mother in me is like, oh, my God, what are you doing? No. So I have to have a talk with my kids about not confronting burglars now. Okay. (laughs) So- Add that to my to-do list. So he tells his dad. His dad goes and calls the cops while the kid races outside. The kid. He runs outside into the street. And, well, first of all, Richard Ramirez is running away. He sees a black members-only style jacket. He sees the jeans, the shoes. And Richard's running away from him. He follows him. He gets in the car. James runs out into the street. He gets the color, make, style, and a partial license plate number of the car. Um, He told the police this information. And James believed that he had just chased away a thief. When, in fact, it was Richard Ramirez. Yeah. So if that kid hadn't been up and then hadn't been like, I'm going to say stupid. I'm not even going to say brave. Um, Kind of a bad little kid. Well, a badass (laughs) either way. I don't know. But like if he hadn't, you know, woke up at that at that point, that family would have been next on the list. And so ultimately that you know, make model color, um, the partial license plate that actually ended up being the start of the downfall of Richard Ramirez because they were able to ID, they put a bolo out for that car and that partial license plate. So after this encounter, well, Richie, we know Richie, if he's foiled once, he ain't gonna stop. Ramirez broke into the house of Bill Carnes, age 30, and his fiancée, Inez Erickson, age 29, through a back door. Ramirez entered the sleeping couple's bedroom and awakened Carnes when he cocked his 25 caliber handgun. So it kind of seems like he's taking back control by cocking it and waking him up, making sure he's awake before he shoots him. He shot Carnes three times in the head before turning his attention to Erickson. Ramirez told the terrified woman that he was the Night Stalker and forced her to swear she loved Satan, 
as he beat her with his fists and bound her with neckties from the closet. After stealing what he could find, Ramirez dragged Erickson to another room before raping her. He then demanded cash and more jewelry and made her swear on Satan that there was no more. Before leaving the home, Ramirez told Erickson, tell them the Night Stalker was here. Erickson untied herself and went to the neighbor's house to get help for her severely injured fiancé. Surgeons removed two bullets from his head and he survived his injuries. Erickson gave a detailed description of the assailant to the investigators. And police obtained a cast of Ramirez's footprint from the Romero house. The stolen car was found abandoned on August 28th in Wilshire Center, L.A. And police obtained a single fingerprint from the rearview mirror, despite Ramirez's very careful efforts to wipe down the car. The print was positively identified as belonging to Ramirez, who was described as a 25-year-old drifter from Texas with a long rap sheet that included many arrests for traffic and illegal drug violations. Law enforcement decided to release a mugshot of Ramirez on December 12, 1984 for the arrest of auto theft to the media, and the Night Stalker finally had a face. At the police conference, it w- press conference, it was announced, we know who you are now, and soon everyone else will. There will be no place you can hide. Interesting point here. This was in the mid-80s. Obviously, DNA analysis was not a thing like it is today. Ramirez was sure to wear gloves and not leave any fingerprints behind, but his DNA was everywhere. But what's interesting to me, if we take a look back at the town that dreaded sundown, according to the police, Ramirez was just a petty criminal. He was just a thief with some traffic violations. And here he is, the most prolific serial killer California has ever seen. Mm-hmm. So maybe, was it Yule? <laughs> Yule Sweeney. Maybe he really was the phantom killer. <laughs> I mean, as far as the police knew at this point, it was just he had some drug convictions and he was just a petty thief that stole a lot of cars. Yeah, they, they wouldn't have gone through their records and been like hey we need to look into this guy he might be the killer exactly he didn't he wasn't their you know most likely to be night stalker (laughs) yeah and i mean mr yule sweeney it's just interesting because like you know we talked how i had never heard of a serial killer that was just like a petty criminal and here we have little here we have mr ramirez oh you're so nice i'm gonna keep calling him richie it makes me feel better inside. Okay. It gives me an iota of control. It's a disgrace to Richie Fallon's. <laughs> you know, we said, or the police said, not we. We know who you are now, and soon everyone else will. There will be no place you can hide. And boy, did that turn out to be true. My favorite part of the documentary. Yeah. The Night Stalker terrorizes the L.A. area. He's terrorizing families. Nobody feels like they're safe. Everyone's locking their doors and windows. They're not sleeping well. They're terrified they're going to be next. I mean, this whole area, this, I mean, that's thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Millions. They're terrified. L.A. County, the whole area. Yeah. They're, I mean, this is impacting everybody. So sweet, sweet ironic justice richie is taken down by a mob in a neighborhood a mob of people who recognized him chased him 
and held him until the police yeah. got there. Luckily, the police got there when they did because I think they were about to assert some vigilante he came, justice. He came bouncing back into town. Yep. And instantly realized, hey, I'm on the front page. Everybody is pointing at me. Everybody knows who I am. Mm-hmm. He had left to go yeah. to Tucson to visit his brother and came back. Had no idea. He has to take off on foot. He's like crossing the expressways and like mob justice. Yes. It was actually a group of elderly Mexican women, which I am so the irony that they were I feel elderly. kind of bad for Richie at that point. Elderly Mexican women <laughs> will jack you up. <laughs> so they fearfully identified him as El Matador, which means the killer. And then Ramirez, yes, saw his face on the front pages of newspaper rack um, articles, and he fled the store in a panic and then ran across the freeway. He attempted to carjack a woman, but he was chased away by the bystanders who pursued him. And after hopping over several fences and attempting two more carjackings, he was subdued by residents, one of whom struck him over the head with a metal bar in the pursuit. Um, The group held him down and relentlessly beat him until the police got there i mean it's just crazy the night stalker and now here it is him exposed in broad daylight with an entire neighborhood chasing after him he he had nowhere to go he was actually thankful that the cops showed up yeah he was and in the in the car um he actually like is ducking down in the car because he is scared yeah it's, I just think at that moment, because, you know, it's just like a little kid. It's like a little kid that gets away with it and gets away with it and doesn't think about the repercussions. And when they get caught, that, oh, shit. Yeah. He was there. Dad's home. <laughs> yeah. That was his, oh, shit moment. Like, yeah. oh, man, I'm busted. Oh, man. Even They're the, pissed. Even the arresting officer who was going to, like, a disturbance and, like, possible assault gets there, gets him in the car. And then realizes everybody's like yelling his name and stuff and realizes mm-hmm. who he actually has in custody. And he's like, oh, crap. <laughs> yeah. He is suspected of other crimes. We've decided that. So specifically, June 27th. Now, he went from May to July. Mm-hmm. This one is June 27th, 1985. 32-year-old Patty Higgins was murdered in her Arcadia home. The crime was not discovered until July 2nd when she didn't show up for work. Her attacker had sodomized her, strangled her, and slashed her throat. Ramirez was charged with the murder and burglary in relation to Higgins' murder. However, the charges against him in this case were eventually dropped due to lack of concrete physical evidence linking Higgins' murder to the Night Stalker crimes. So how many of those were there that didn't get caught? Incidents where he did it, but... It wasn't like for him, it was just a quickie, you know, mm-hmm. uh, just something to scratch that annoying itch for a second. Who knows? Who knows? You know, he and the saga of Richie Ramirez is not over. Not, we have <laughs> not at all the life and times of Richard Ramirez in the courtroom. So, trial and conviction, right? Okay. So, ultimately, he was overall convicted of 13 counts of murder. Again, he did murder Higgins, but was not counted, uh, was not convicted for it. But it is still counted as 14 murders attributed to him. So, 13 counts of murder, 
five attempted murders, 11 sexual assaults, 14 burglaries, and a partridge in a pear tree. So during the penalty phase of the trial, November 7th, 1989, he was sentenced to die in California's gas chamber. This gets me. He stated to reporters after the death sentences, big deal, death always went with the territory. See you in Disneyland. The trial cost $1.8 million, which would be like $3.71 million in today's terms, which at the time made it the most expensive in history of California until it was finally surpassed by the O.J. Simpson murder case in 1994. Which, if you count for inflation, (laughs) was probably less expensive. So during his trial... He So he had the nastiest, most rotten teeth. That was something that the surviving victims made sure to tell police is that he stunk and his breath was like rotted yeah, meat. Yeah, what was the deal with the stinking? He was nasty. nasty. He had a nasty smile. And so first thing he does when he gets to jail is he goes to the dentist. Mm-hmm. And over the next nine months, the dentist replaces his nasty, rotten teeth with the most beautiful smile. That he could afford to give him. Prison health care. Prison health care. So his attorneys transformed him from this nasty, no-account, druggy drifter into this GQ movie star-looking guy. Okay, we already got weird groupies. Even if he had looked like he did, weird groupies would have flocked to him. I mean, he looked straight Hollywood. They turned him straight Hollywood, and they flocked. I mean, he had everyone behind him. It was like Ted Bundy all over again. Everybody behind behind him all the women behind him were fans of his he had kids in there that were satan worshipers and were there to support him in the courtroom in the courtroom and so you had victims and victims families sitting next to these supporters of this man so you know he would draw pentagrams on his hand and flash it around the courtroom he he definitely tried to sensationalize that and kind of push his bad boy and Billy the kid insanity reputation he had going on um but just crazy things happened while he was during trial you know like a female juror was fatally shot during his trial not Mm -hmm. by him but one of the jurors didn't show up at the courtroom and a few hours later she was found shot in her um apartment so of course the grand jury was terrified believing that Ramirez had somehow masterminded the murder behind bars Um, but turns out it was her boyfriend. Um, he threatened to shoot his prosecutor (laughs) known for his flirty and spectacular performances in front of the cameras. Richard Ramirez once planned to bring a gun into the courtroom and shoot his prosecutor. The plot was discovered by, um, jail employees when they overheard Ramirez's plan. After that, the courthouse installed metal detectors and intensive searches were conducted on people entering. This one made me laugh. I'm sorry. He planned to escape prison twice. So he had a Bundy thing, Bundy idol worship. A few months after Ramirez's death, the New York Post published an article stating that the infamous killer hatched two plots to escape prison to continue his murder spree. Both plans obviously failed. In 1993, while being brought back to prison, Ramirez tried to smuggle a key into his rectum that would unlock his handcuffs. Prison pocket. 
The second plan had never been executed since correctional officers became aware of the plot after reading one of the letters sent to Ramirez by a Night Stalker groupie. The groupies. The groupies. As Netflix's documentary shows, Richard Ramirez, old Richie, handsome GQ model Richie, attracted the affections of many women during his trial and his years in prison. And they just all happened to look like they were fans of Motley Crue. <laughs> did you notice that? I did not. <laughs> oh, my God. oh, that's good. Um, so he would get pictures. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. Um, they showed some of the pictures on the documentary with pl- places with black bars over certain places, but um, they were quite lewd pictures. For a prisoner, he was getting some spank bank material. <laughs> he really was. So here's the difference between like Richard Ramirez, who was getting all these great pictures, and he was just going through them like baseball cards, like, yeah. yep, yep. You're getting a letter back. Here's the difference between him and, let's say, Richard Kuklinski, Iceman Killer. (laughs) He would get those same pictures after that his documentary aired, and he would be disgusted, and he would say, these women are whores. I don't want any of that filth, and he would throw them away. Yeah. So. Not Richie. Not Richie, boy. I don't wonder. Okay, so I know you can't, but. Maybe you can explain to me the desire that some, and I would normally say women, but it's not just women, I'm sure, how they're attracted to serial killers and some of the most heinous people that have ever lived. So, I mean, you have, they idolize them and and send letters to express their love. Some of them, it's the ultimate bad boy. Some of them, it's the fear thing, like, ooh, that delicious fear. He makes me feel, you know. And some of them, like Miss Doreen LaJoy, believes she sees a softer and more vulnerable side of Richie. And the I'm going to change him. I'm going to change him. Okay, so there's this other TV show series on Netflix, World's Toughest Prisons, I believe it's called. I watch it from time to time. Mm-hmm. And on a certain episode, they were in some Eastern Bloc European country prison place where all these prisoners were here. And then the literally the country's worst prisoner was over here by himself. Now, this guy was a serial killer, but he liked to eat his victims. Okay. He ate people. He was a cannibal. He was in his 60s. And a girl in her 20s started writing him and married him and had a child with him. He eats people. Well, I mean, in Richie's defense, he probably would have too, but his teeth were real bad. Yeah, so, that is true. You know, just saying. And, you know, ninja blenders weren't a but thing just, back I, then. I, so. just, I just don't understand, you know. <clears throat> I don't. I don't get it either. And I, you know, definitely bad boys you know is a type of mine i would say but not that bad that's really bad like i have a i have a that's way beyond black leather jacket and motorcycle i mean i have a i have a limit um you know prison stints usually hard limit for me (laughs) death row (laughs) just saying i do have a limit um so we have doreen lajoy 
She's a freelance magazine editor. And in 1996, she first began writing letters to Ramirez after seeing him in 1995 on television after his arrest. She wrote to him daily, visited him in prison, and attended his trial. Eventually, her family disowned her. Well, yeah. She said he's kind, he's funny, he's charming. She saw a certain vulnerability in the cold-blooded killer, and she believed he was innocent, and she battled to clear his name of any wrongdoing. So out of all the women that sent him letters and pictures and stuff, he proposed to this one. So she believed he was innocent. Mm-hmm. So they got married. <laughs> okay. They just g- like, this is one of those people who, like, <laughs> keep in mind, she used to just be walking amongst you all. <laughs> yeah, you know. So October 3rd, 1996, Ramirez and LaJoy were wed at San Quentin State Prison. A beautiful ceremony. Where witnesses included Ramirez's siblings and around 60 inmates, a small intimate wedding. When asked how she felt about marrying a man who was known as the face of evil, LaJoy replied, I can't help the way the world looks at him. They don't know him the way I do. Also, LaJoy wore a gold wedding band herself, but Ramirez wore a platinum wedding band. As he stated, Satanists don't wear gold. I didn't know that was a rule. Ah, well, Hmm. unless you're a closet Satanist, I don't know why you would. So, LaJoy, Ramirez, the happy couple, you know, 1996, okay? Yeah, I remember it. (laughs) I barely do. I was like nine. Yeah, we don't need to discuss it. Okay. 2010, LaJoy eventually begins distancing herself from Ramirez when her efforts to clear his name were getting nowhere considering the staggering amount of physical evidence against her husband. This is after appeal, after appeal, yeah, after appeal, after appeal is rejected. She's married him thinking that she's going to get him out and they're going to live happily ever after. Yes. Now... Hell Satan. <laughs> in 2009, when he was implicated in the death of that nine-year-old girl that yeah. happened in 1984, by the way, I don't think we mentioned that, that was the straw that broke the doe-eyed, rose-colored oh. glasses. <laughs> that was the straw. That was the straw. <laughs> At that point, LaJoy separated and they were divorced. Whenever the DNA evidence linked him directly to the murder of a uh-huh. nine-year-old girl that had been raped. Of a little girl. Uh, now. She was like, oh, well, then I'm out. Yeah, you know, that was her hard limit. But... Was Richie done with his groupies? Oh, no. He still had his baseball card collection of lewd and nude. He then becomes engaged to a 20-something-year-old woman. He's 53 at this point. Like He's in his 50s at this point, right? Yeah. Okay. So, Ramirez's defense team did not provide a potential motive for his client's horrific crimes, stating in court, we felt, and he felt... He didn't particularly want to lay his life out for the public in the court to scrutinize poor Richie. Um, And at the trial's end, he was found guilty of all charges against him. So his defense was, I did it, but there's a really good reason I did it, but I'm not going to tell you what that reason is. I, I mean, he just, he never expressed remorse. It was like, I did it, deal with it, and yeah, that's it. Um, And again, he says to the press, big deal. Death always went with the territory. See you in Disneyland. 
that is what he said after he was convicted. So is he saying Disneyland is hell? I'm thinking the gas chamber. I don't know. Mickey Mouse is Satan. Okay, so he does not make it to the death chamber. At 53 years old, on June 13th, 2013, he dies of B-cell lymphoma. He dies of cancer while awaiting execution on California's death row. He is still popular. Mary. He is used in pop culture. Yep. Like... Uh, American Horror Story has used him. Yep. He makes appearances in all kinds of little cameo appearances in different horror movies and stuff, Easter eggs. It's funny because it's not it's not funny to me. It my little murder junkie soul cringes. How many the sheer number of people most of them being younger naive little people uneducated that did not know that he was a real person (laughs) outside of american horror story they had no free it went around on tiktok after that show aired and someone was like oh my god like i can't you know yeah and he died then and all these kids on tiktok are like he was a real person what this happened but here's something that i think needs to be expressed and remembered uh we have an interest in true crime, obviously. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's a main subject of this show. However, we can't forget the victims. Yes. It can't be expressed enough. Yeah. And while we're uh, sharing information about these crimes that have happened, imagine what it would be like for a victim or the family member of a victim to see, you know, Richard Ramirez on American Horror Story mm-hmm. and to see, you know, people wearing Repeating pictures me. of him on his, their T-shirts. And yeah. I mean, that would be horrific. Yeah. Um, Ramirez, mental health wise, um, he was a made psychopath as opposed to a born psychopath. He had a schizoid personality disorder that contributed to his indifference to the suffering of his victims and his untreatability. So even if he had gotten into counseling... It wouldn't, would, have it wouldn't have worked. Basically, this this psychiatrist, Michael H. Stone, said that after Ramirez's um, head injuries, he would develop temporal lobe epilepsy, aggressivity, and hypersexuality. Well, even, even his father. Uh, I read that his father had been abused, and his father's father had been abused, but his father swore he wasn't going to be a dad like that, and then ultimately turned to abuse and became a dad like that so here you have another situation you know where that's not going to happen um the the graveyard thing what was that about did you find any information about that they mentioned that his father tied him to a cross in a cemetery to punish him and then in other articles they said he would go to the cemetery and stay the night to escape the abuse of his father right so there you have more conflicts happening Mm -hmm. that was his yeah that was supposed to be his like safe place you know so was it just the perfect storm of psychological events abuse and head trauma or was it evil at work or a combination of the two the most terrifying thing is how many more richies are out there that are not caught yeah how many uh little kids are 
developing into riches. Developing into the next Night Stalker and living out there on Planet Fear. As always, we thank you for listening. Please don't forget to give us a five-star review and a like. Also, check out our other social media sites for new content. Stay safe, and we'll catch you next time on Planet Fear.